chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. I would invite you to hold your copy of the scripture open to Matthew 5. This is uh, obviously picking up a bit of a conversation in the middle of uh, what is an ongoing sermon of Jesus. And so there uh, is, it would be helpful for us to have the scripture before us. That there's three places we're going to go today in order to provide some background to this particular passage. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, we'll spend a little time in, and Matthew 19. And we, what we find here is Jesus is uh, talking about the issue of divorce. And so we, we might think of this, uh, if you remember, the Sermon on the Mount is two believers, it's two Christians. And so uh, the, really the, the, the banner topic is the Christian and divorce. And as it relates to marriage, because Jesus is giving instruction on examples of the way in which the Pharisees have fallen short in their teaching of God's law. And so um, he's giving an example. This is a third example in a list of examples of about six that he has given. So just to go back and, and kind of catch up uh, what we're thinking about, these two verses are, are an unfolding of Jesus' description of the kingdom of heaven and the character of the people who live in it. He's been talking about the kingdom of God again and again and again. And he has said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what Jesus is doing in his life and his mission and his teaching is filling up all that was missing or incomplete previously. So Jesus is not only accomplishing God's promises, he's also clarifying God's word. And, and his teaching is shocking. It's absolutely stunning. And so uh, he says, God's word is going to endure till the end of time. Every little detail of it will come to pass. Nothing, not a, not a iota, not a dot, will, will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. And because that's true, he says, I, I warn those of you who would teach or relax is the word that he uses in uh, verse 19. Uh, those of you who would relax the least of God's command will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those of you who teach and do God's command will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he instantly goes to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are those who are on his mind when he is thinking of those who have relaxed the teaching of um, the scribes and the, of, 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 the guy, of the Old Testament law. And so he says something amazing in verse 20, and I'd like for you to see that. And, and just keep your Bible with me. We'll, we'll look at a handful of the verses. Matthew 5, 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's breathtaking. And so everything that we see Jesus doing is now giving an example of the righteousness of God the high and holy commands of God and the ways in which the teachings of man have fallen short. 
And we just sang about holiness. And I don't know what effect those songs had on you. Um, it moves me because I think we have no concept of holiness. We don't. We, we think we do because we're bright and intelligent people. But when, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and the Pharisees, you'll no way get into heaven. I, I find myself absolutely fab, flabbergasted. Because as he unfolds the examples, the, he lists six examples. What he's doing is devastating the righteousness of man. He's devastating your confidence in your ability to get you into the kingdom of heaven. And he is exalting himself, as we will see. We're, we're in the middle of a sermon that I, I don't even know what it would have been like to be there and listen to all of this. I can barely comprehend two verses each week. And yet Jesus is upholding a kind of holiness which is breathtaking, but that's what he's calling his people to. So part of what the challenge for us is, as I even read these examples, you're going to feel condemned. You will, you will feel like you fall short. Because you do. <laughs> Every one of us falls short of the righteousness that Jesus is describing here. And yet, he upholds, he points us to implicitly as his ministry unfolds to the one person who has fulfilled every dot, every little tiny speck of God's law. And it's him. This sermon is intended you to cause you to weep. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, not my sermon. <laughs> Although it might. He, he wants your confidence in God. In the work that Jesus has accomplished and not in yourself. Not in anything that you would do. So he gives these examples. He says, here's the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. It is perfect. That is what he's describing. And at the very end of this sermon, he says, verse 48 of the end of chapter 5. If you have your copy, look with me. If you, you must be perfect. Be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. Before we're done today, every one of you will feel imperfect in some way. Because there's only one perfect person, and it's Jesus. And what he is explaining here is he is illustrating the, the danger of the false teaching of the Pharisees because what they have done in only halfway telling God's law is to provide a, a, a sense of security in God that's faulty. Because they are establishing their own righteousness. They think in teaching the way that they're teaching, and they're only partially teaching God's law, some of it's right, but they miss the heart of it. And so Jesus is exposing the necessity of God to permeate your heart in order to transform your soul so that you can have a relationship with a holy God. Because without that, it's absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. And so Jesus says, here, he says, that's the righteousness I'm about to explain is this high and holy righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And you Pharisees, you've relaxed the teaching. 
And I'll give you six examples of how you've done it. And so Steve mentioned last week, you think you're holy and righteous because you haven't actually physically killed someone. And he says, I'm telling you that the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven would prohibit you from thinking about it or imagining or hating someone so much in your heart that you would do it. He says, you're guilty if you've done those things. You're, you're not righteous because you've never committed mercy. Murder. You, we ought to commit mercy. Where in the world did that come from? <laughs> right? Blessed are the merciful as the rest of the, the commandment. But he, so he, he, he devastates self-confidence because you're, you've never actually physically killed someone. He says, if you hated someone in your heart before God's holy law, you're guilty. And then he moves on and he says, and that was the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now he goes into the seventh command. He said, let's talk about adultery. You think you're righteous because you, you have never committed adultery. And so last week was part one. Today is part two of his teaching on how they have broken the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. He said, you think you're guilty because you've never actually committed adultery. And he says, I'm telling you that before the standards of the holiness of God, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, before the eyes of God, you're guilty. And now part three, he says, and, and also Pharisees, you're teaching that you, what you're teaching about divorce actually leads to adultery. That's the point of what Jesus is making. You, you've relaxed the command, don't commit adultery. And what you have said is you, you can get a divorce very easily. And he said, what you're doing is actually leading to adultery. So let me just read um, these two verses one more time. But I want to pray before I do. Because this is a heavy topic. This is an incredibly heavy topic. And Jesus is not here offering an exhaustive teaching on divorce and remarriage and every instance and what do you do and this and that. I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to try to confine myself to what Jesus has said. So this will raise lots of questions that won't get answered today. Uh, We don't have time and Jesus doesn't go into them. I'm going to stick with what Jesus says. But we're, we're probably all of us in this room have been touched by divorce. And so Uh, This is something that needs prayer. I want to cover our time in prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Uh, Lord Jesus, you know uh, there's nothing that cuts to the heart of humanity than what we do in our bedrooms and how we live our sex lives and relationships and marriage and divorce. And these affect the very foundation of humanity, the very foundation of our lives And your standards of holiness are incomprehensibly high. And yet, Lord, you you call us to holiness. You call your people to holiness. And Father, we we don't live up to those standards because we just don't believe holiness is good. And I pray, Lord Jesus, would you give us the kind of faith that would accept your word is good. May we be a people, everybody listening to me, be a people who would embrace the truth. Your word is good. Your will for us is good. And Lord, I pray we would never settle for substitutes and shortcuts to the goodness that you have for your people by thinking we can get to it any other way. 
So God, reveal to us where we have accepted lies of the world concerning sexuality, concerning marriage, divorce, and so forth. Where lies have crept in, I pray for truth. And Lord Jesus, I pray for your spirit to give us ears to hear what you would say. And you know, Jesus, if I could die right now and you come preach, I'd do it. So please, Lord Jesus, speak to our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Let me just summarize this. You, you heard Sue read it. Let me just summarize what Jesus is saying. While, while we're on the topic of divorce, adultery, um, you have heard it said by scribes and Pharisees, and whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And you think that's just. But I say to you, any man who divorces his wife except for the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman so unjustly, wrongfully divorced also commits adultery. That, that's his point. That's, that's the sermon. So as we apply it, what Jesus is explaining is the teaching of the Pharisees, they're saying... You can get a divorce for whatever reason you want, so long as you hand her a certificate of divorce. So long as you, you have the paperwork, you're good. That was what they were teaching. And people believed it because they were the authorities. Oh, folks, watch out who you listen to, including in this room. Watch out who you listen to. Just because some dude's on the TV does not mean he's speaking the truth. So he is calling them to say, what, what you're doing is reducing God to like an unholy court clerk. Oh, you got the divorce paper. Fine, be on your way. That, that's what they, they, the effect of what they are teaching. And he's saying this is not true because when that happens, and he says the only case in which a divorce is justified is the case of sexual immorality. We'll come back to that word. He says when that happens, you divorce a woman, you make her commit adultery. Which means she's going to have to get remarried if she's going to live and have a roof over her head and have food on the table and have protection. She's going to have to remarry. And when she does, she's going to be committing adultery because she's actually already married because the premise upon which you gave the divorce was invalid. And he says, and you're going to make the other guy commit adultery who marries such a woman who has been so wrongfully divorced. So guys, you're not preaching justice and righteousness. You're actually giving occasion to adultery in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the sum of it and the short of it. So Jesus' point, and that's it. He's very concise here. So if you're looking for a list of in what cases is divorce allowed, I'm not going there today. That's another sermon for another day. And that's the wrong attitude anyway. If we're just always looking for a way to get out of doing what's right, we're doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. What, what we're being called to do is, is to look for ways that God by his spirit can help us do what's right. And so Jesus is holding up a high and holy standard of marriage, so high that it is absolutely incredible, but we need to see it, and we need to be confronted with it, and I think it will probably be uncomfortable, because the point of what Jesus is saying is, is marriage is forever, marriage is for life. 
That, that's the plan of God. It's an absolutely unique relationship. It cannot be broken. And even in the case of sexual sin, when it could be broken, it need not be. It doesn't have to be. It's not commanded to be broken. Even though that's grounds for it, you're not required to do it. That's what Jesus is teaching. So, two things. There's two verses here. One simply describes the laxity, the relaxed teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And the other describes the righteous teaching of Jesus. And so, where do the Pharisees get this notion? that Whoever divorces a wife can do so justly as so long as a certificate of divorce is given. Uh, that really comes from Deuteronomy 24. So let's go there and take a look at where they are getting what they are teaching. Uh, there's, the first four verses are really the whole paragraph. I'm just going to zero in on the heart of it, and you can read it later as you do some more research. But this is the only place in the Old Testament that gives any kind of extensive teaching on divorce. And in this passage, I want you to see divorce is neither condemned nor commanded. It's neither condoned nor, nor commanded. It's simply a fact. And so the case, it's kind of a case study where the man uh, who is spoken of here, uh, well, let me just read it uh, in verse 1 and, and 2 here. So uh, the, 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 there's a man whose wife has, finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and he sends her out of the house. So the certificate of divorce, that's the key. That's where they're getting this notion. And they're saying, if you do that, you're right. It's okay with God so long as you have the paperwork, you give her a certificate of divorce. D divorce is okay for any reason. That's, that's the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's how they have relaxed God's teaching on marriage. So this does two things. It, it points us to the, the, the law was intended to uh, make easy divorce impossible. And that's part of the reason why the certificate of divorce is there is, is it makes re, it's divor easy divorce impossible and it then forces us to think about the permanence of marriage. Because if you get a certificate of divorce, you had to go find a scribe, you had to hire him, you, you had to find the, the right verbiage, the, the language had to be there, which included the exact phrase of uh, renouncing the claims to the wife and then saying, Lo, she is free to marry whomever. That's part of the requirement of the divorce papers. So it's assumed remarriage is going to happen. It's going to. She has to find some place to live. So you got to go get a scribe. You have to explain to him this some undecency. You have to give a reason for this. You can't just, uh, you know, on a whim, and part of this is what, how the protection is given to women. A, a, a rash husband can't just say, you're out. You're out of here. Get out. Writing it down, thinking about it, forcing him to go pay money, get a scribe to write the certificate, and he had to find two witnesses. So he's got to have someone to go along with him to understand and affirm that his discovery or proof of whatever this indecency is is valid, and they're going to sign their names on it too. All of this has to happen, and then the certificate of divorce had to be delivered into her hands. It's part of the requirement. So this prevents hasty divorce. It, it protects women from rash and stupid, hard-hearted husbands. Secondly, it forces us to talk about the permanence of marriage because the law prohibits, and here's the, 
the instruction, the all, the all four verses, it says if, if a woman is divorced and she goes, she's going to marry someone else, she has to, if that husband, that second husband, either dies or if she's divorced from him, she can't go back to the first husband. That's the point. Because God says that would be defilement in his eyes. And I think what that means is that the one flesh union would be so violated that that in God's eyes, this is not going to happen. And it forces, it's over guys. If you get the divorce, it's final. You can't go back. This, so he's preventing us spreading ourselves across the sexual universe with multiple sexual partners is what God is doing. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees focused on this some indecency, that word indecency. That's the focal point at which they began to then apply, okay, then what's legitimate grounds for divorce? Now, this word is not the word for adultery. This is different. Adultery, the punishment was death. So this, we're not talking about death because she's allowed to leave and she's allowed to live. The Hebrew word here for indecency actually means literally the nakedness of a thing. And it implies shameful exposure of the body with an intentionally sexual nature to it. It means she has transgressed some boundary intentionally that is of a sexual nature that falls short of adultery. So it's a sexual sin that is not adultery. If it was adultery, she would, she would die. So two schools of thought began to develop in Judaism on understanding how do we apply this, this word, this provision for divorce. Why? Because we're always looking for a way out. We just sometimes we want a way out. And so the Hillel school was a liberal school of thought that focused on the phrase, she found no favor in his eyes. And they said, well, I can, there's lots of reasons for that. Lots of reasons. Maybe she's got some kind of physical deformity or she's gotten infirmed as she has gotten older or, or maybe she even spoiled a meal or I found somebody better looking. They allowed divorce for all of those grounds. So long as there is a certificate handed, which is just brutal, right? You get old, this happens all the time. You find somebody cuter, better looking, and you just send away the wife of your youth. God does not, God is not impressed. In fact, we will see he gets a bit angry when we do things like that. The Shemai school were more conservative and they focused on the very word itself, which it boils down to some sort of conjugal breach in the sexual union of, of the marriage. So it had to be a sexual sin. Not adultery, but some kind of sexual offense that is willing is what they concluded. So they have a more conservative view, um, but that is the, the, the grounds for divorce here. Now, so it's important to note, divorce is nowhere commanded here. Nowhere commanded, but the scribes and the Pharisees in their zealous pursuit for righteousness and looking good in the eyes of people began to morph their thinking such that when an instance of such indecency happened, they taught that you're actually, in order to be a righteous guy, if you discover this about your wife, you must divorce her. You're obligated to divorce her. That was what they were teaching. And this we see in Matthew 19. It becomes a little bit clearer because the Pharisees come and ask Jesus a question. 
So what we have in short form in, in, in Matthew 5, we have in longer form in 19. Let me read a couple of verses. 19, 7 to 8. They said to him, this is the scribes and the Pharisees coming, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? You see what they're teaching. Moses commanded divorce. He didn't. He didn't. They had, they had twisted that. And Jesus said, it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you divorce. He didn't command it. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So divorce is not commanded even when there has been a sexual offense. Not commanded. It's allowed if you can't recover. If redemption is impossible and so forth, then it is allowed. So some, let me just quickly summary. What have we seen? The Pharisee had relaxed the teaching of the law um, and that it was justifiable to get a divorce for whatever cause any cause whatsoever, so long as a certificate of divorce was given to the woman when she was sent away. That's the first error. Secondly, they had relaxed and turned what was permissible into what was commanded. That is a twisting of what God's word was. And so the effect was that women who were then unjustly put out of a marriage necessarily need to find another place to live and be safe. That means marriage. So they're making her commit adultery by marrying again. And then secondly, it is also this, this whoever marries a woman who has been so wrongfully divorced, uh, he's also committing adultery. So the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees was giving occasion for adultery. The righteous guys in their righteous teasing, teaching were actually being a cause of sin. So now let's look at what Jesus says in verse 32. Let's consider the right teaching of Jesus. He says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, 532, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman so divorced um, commits adultery. So Jesus is arguing that Divorce occasions adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality. And here's the principle. How, how can that be? Because God, when he unites two people in the covenant of marriage, that covenant is binding throughout life until it is ended by death. And we all know this. We know it because we pledge it. At least, that's what traditional wedding vows hold. Some today want to lessen the demand, and so we write our own vows. If you want me to do your marriage, the traditional vows have to be there. You can write your own vows and include them as an addition, but I won't do a marriage without the traditional vows because I want you to promise till death separates us. And that's what we see in Matthew 19. We see Jesus explain God's ideal for marriage. So let's look at it. This is the other passage, 19, 3 to 9. I'm going to read the whole passage because Jesus explains his opinion about marriage and the entire world needs to hear this. The United States needs to hear what Jesus says. The Pharisees came up and said uh, to test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And they said, well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, which we have already read. But Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality marries another and marries another commits adultery. So here's, you need to, you need to bookmark that page. You should probably memorize it, all of us. If you want to know what what God's view, what Jesus' view of marriage is, here, here it is. And I, I want to draw out several applications from this passage of Jesus' opinion of marriage because we don't know what marriage is as, as a country. We, we're so confused. So first point from that, that passage, and I hold your Bible open. I hope you can see right where I'm getting it. First, marriage is God's idea. Verse 4. Jesus is quoting here Genesis 1.27. He believes marriage was created by God, instituted God, by God, and defined by God. It was designed by God with a particular intent. So God is the God over marriage. He created it. He owns the copyright. You don't get to change God's definition of marriage. If you do, it brings destruction. He alone has the right to define marriage. Secondly, marriage involves two people, one man and one woman. Verse 4. All right, this is also grounded in Genesis 1.27. He says the two were created for each other by God. Marriage does not involve two males or two females, but rather it is designed and defined for one male and one female. And there's several reasons for this, but primarily among them is the biological design of our bodies are aimed at procreation. And God intends, the very next phrase after we see this, he says in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 128. So after 127, creating male and female, in 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. God wants little people. He wants this planet peopled. And how does that happen? From one man and one woman. Two men cannot have little people. Two women cannot have two uh, little people. And so marriage is two people, not four or six or three or a dog and a cat or anybody else. It is man and woman. And, and this is God's intention. And so it's God's will that marriage be the place through which this planet is peopled. That's his will. Third, marriage is a relationship of the highest priority. Verse 5, marriages involves a man and a woman who commit themselves together, and that level of commitment is to transcend every other human relationship. They are to have the highest allegiance. Like, this is also quoting Genesis 2, 24, where Jesus says, that a husband leaves his father and mother. Husband and wife are to leave the biological family of origin in order to cleave together. They are to cling to one another, meaning their devotion to one another is to supersede every other relationship in their lives. You, you have to leave, in some sense, all of us. Mom and dad, it's painful. Yes, I got two getting married in August. They're, it's coming, but we have to let them go in order for a new family to be founded. So marriage is to be prioritized above every other relationship. Husbands and wives, is it? Is married folks in the room, is it? Because here is what we are seeing Jesus teach us. 
Fourth, he is teaching us that it is a relationship of united companionship. It is a relationship of united companionship. 2.24 also, he will hold fast to his wife. Guys, you cannot, oh, women too, we can't let other affections get in between us. We must cling to one another. Cling to. God created a wife for Adam. You remember this. And, and, and showed him all of creation. And he named all of the animals. And at the end, he's like, gee, there's a lot of cool stuff in the world, but there's nobody like me. And God said at that point, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he created Eve to hold fast to Adam in such a way that God himself didn't supply. There's a kind of companionship between husband and wife that God himself isn't able to supply or hasn't chosen to supply. And single folks, if you're in the room, I'm not saying you're incomplete. I am not. Jesus was called to singleness. He's the most complete person I know. If God has called you to singleness, you're good. His grace will be enough. But if you're married, you're to cling to one person. That's your spouse. Nobody else. So this united companionship. Fifth, marriage is to be a relationship of unbreakable union. Verse 5. The two shall become one flesh. One flesh. And he repeats it. He quotes Genesis and then he repeats it and he concludes. Verse 6. So, after saying that the two shall become one flesh, Jesus says, So, they that are no, they're no longer two but one. In other words, he's saying, Hey guys, do you get that point? In, in Genesis, when the two shall be one flesh, he means you're to be so together that tearing you apart is like a ripping of your flesh. So Pharisees, you ought to want a divorce as much as you want your bones broken or your flesh ripped apart. That's what he's saying. One flesh, an unbreakable union. And none of us want to have our flesh ripped apart or our bones broken. And yet... That sometimes is what has happened. And remember what Adam said when he saw her, when God presented Eve to Adam. What did he say? At last, <laughs> finally, my flesh, my bone. She's my flesh and bone. Husbands and wives, that's how we ought to think about one another. We ought to think about her as, as the same body. And sixth, God is actively present in uniting husband and wife. God is actively present in the union of husband and wife. Verse 6, what God has joined together. There's the phrase, what God has joined together. What does that say? When you got married, God was with you. He was present. And young people, if you're ever thinking about getting married, you need to hear this. God is present in the union of husband and wife. It is God who brings together two people and unites them. He is spiritually present in a mysterious way of, of creating a marital union between husband and wife. And Malachi picks up on this and he says in chapter 2, Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? Malachi, it's Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one in the portion of his spirit with their union? When husband and wife come together, the spirit of God is present, making them one. He's actively a participant in that. That is why God hates divorce. 
because it destroys the work of God and rips apart something that God himself has pulled together and united. And and he goes on and he says, Malachi does, in 2.14, this is why your prayers aren't heard. This This is why God doesn't pay attention to your offerings It is because you have have turned away from your wife. And so 2.14, why does he not hear your prayers and accept your offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So she uh, she is your companion, your wife of the covenant. This is where Peter says, guys, unless you live with your wives in an understanding way, God ignores your prayers. So God, why? Because he was present there in the union of husband and wife. So don't tear it apart. Seventh, marriage is never to end. Marriage is never to live, end, so long as life endures. Verse six, what God has joined together, God was a part of that union. Next phrase, let not man separate. These are the words of Jesus. Let not man separate. If God has united it, then man ought not to separate it. If God has ultimately brought husband and wife together in a kind of union, then it is only he who can end it, and that happens at death. We promise to each other, I will be faithful to you until we are separated by death. That is how long marriage is intended by God to last. And the Pharisees at this point say, well, then how come Moses commanded divorce? If that's true, Jesus, you're, you're, you're mixing uh, uh, God's law. He, he, he commanded it. Jesus corrected that teaching. He says, no, he allowed it. Okay, so there's Jesus' upholding of the high standards of marriage. And now, what about this exception clause? Um, let me read it again, 532. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. We know what that means. And whoever marries a woman so divorced also commits adultery. The except on the ground of sexual immorality is only included in Matthew. Luke doesn't have it. Mark doesn't have it. John doesn't repeat it. So he's the only synoptic author to include this exception clause. And I pulled my hair out this week trying to figure out if I should summarize the seven or eight different options for why that might be. And I decided I'm not going to do it. I just want you to know there are lots of explanations for why this might be the case. And I think you can, you can go do some studies. If you want some commentaries, I can point you to them. But to me, the simplest explanation, and I reserve the right to be proven wrong or change my mind, is that Matthew was writing after Mark and he decided to explain what to Jewish audience and Jewish readers would have been understood in the earlier Gospels. And so it was, I think, assumed that sexual infidelity, some kind of sexual sin, the sexual immorality, would have been the grounds for divorce. And so Matthew simply states what the others would have assumed. And, and I, I draw that conclusion because the sexual immorality, this word is porneia. It is not the word for adultery. There's some who argue that this means adultery and that adultery alone is the sole grounds for justified divorce. But this word is porneia, 
which is a broad word that means many kinds of sexual sins like incest or prostitution or any kind of illicit sex or homosexual sex is also mentioned. So all of that is included in this word as justifiable grounds for divorce. And so I think what Jesus is saying is sexual sin destroys your marriage. No matter what kind it is, it violates the marital bond between husband and wife. And some of you in this room have lived it. You know what that means. And yet, he, divorce is not commanded. It is not commanded. And so Jesus here is saying, if there is a way out, it is only through sexual sin. It's not because she burnt the toast. It is not some frivolous reason. It's not because she doesn't look pretty anymore. It's not because you found a, a someone who is more attractive. It's sexual sin that destroys the marriage. But it doesn't necessarily have to end even in that. So what's the summary? The relaxed teaching of the scribes and Pharisees said divorce was allowed for any reason whatsoever. So long as a valid certificate of divorce was given, Jesus says, wrong. No valid reason for divorce for any reason whatsoever. When you, when you hold that principle, you, you promulgate adultery because the, the divorced woman is going to go get remarried, adultery. And the guy who marries a woman so wrongfully divorced also commits adultery when he marries her. Exception. Only divorce is allowed in the instance of sexual sin. So conclusion, what do we take with us? Uh, the point I think, why is this such a big deal? It is because the nature of marriage is the one living parable that God ordained to show to this world the undying love of Christ for his church. That's the one thing. So when we violate marriage, we make God look bad. So here, here's, the, here's where I get that. Ephesians 5, 28 to through 32. Husbands, oh, husbands, hear these words. Hear these words. Husbands ought to love their wives just as they do their own bodies. If every man would sit for four hours and think about that verse, think about what you do for your own body, how much time do you go to the gym? How much effort, how much effort do you go into picking out what kind of food to eat so that you look strong and great? What, what, if, what if all of the tension we puffed up proud men put into our own bodies, if we turn that out to our wives, how different would things be? Husbands ought to love their wives just as they do their own bodies. For no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. There's that word in the wedding vows, cherish. Just as Christ loves and nourishes and cherishes the church because we, the church, are his body in the world. We are his body. The Christians are his body in the world. Therefore, look at Paul's reasoning. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. Your marriage, the institution of marriage, is intended to portray to the world the kind of love that exists between church and Jesus. That's what marriage is intended to communicate. So, the love of a husband for his wife ought to endure for all of life because Christ's love for his church endures for all of life. Right? A husband ought to never break his vows to his wife because Jesus never breaks his vows to his church. The uh, providing care of a husband for his wife ought never to end because the providing care of Jesus for his church never ends. 
The loving kindness of a husband for his wife ought to last through all of the seasons of life because Christ's loving kindness for his church lasts through all the seasons of life. And the tender, loving affection of a husband for his wife ought never to waver, no matter how old she is or how weak she is, because the tender, loving affection of Jesus and his church never wavers, no matter how old or how weak we are. Let marriage, if that was in our minds, my marriage ought to reflect Christ to this world. We ought to go home with that. Secondly, I would say, please don't think divorce is the unforgivable sin. If you're in this room and you're divorced, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Everybody in this room, I suspect, has been touched by the pain of divorce. My parents divorced when I was in college. I was 21 years old. It is still the most painful season of my life. It was like the tearing off of the flesh from the bones to watch 33 years my parents' marriage fall apart. But I want you to know, God understands. Did you know God got a divorce? Jeremiah 3 says something incredible. Came across this in my daily reading. Here's what God said to Jeremiah, he said, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? I thought that after she had done this, she would return to me, but she did not return. And so for all of the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. He's talking about exile. I sent her away. She sinned so grievously and it took thousand years to get to that point. Oh, how patient is God. Oh, but, but how terrible. The wrath of a just man, a just God. I sent her away. God, too, is touched by the pain of divorce. So don't think that if you have gone through divorce, that that is irrecoverable and that redemption is impossible. John says it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So know that God understands and that divorce is not an unforgivable sin. And the third thing I would say is, to those of you who are married, cherish your marriage. Is your attitude towards your spouse what it needs to be? And, and not everybody's at the same place, but I, 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 we are called to be patient with one another. We are called, if we're called to love our enemies, how much more should we love the spouse whom we just don't really like? If we're called to pray for those who persecute us, how much more should we pray for our spouses when he or she has ticked us off? And, and I, I got an email that I want to share with you that was stunning to me because it came yesterday from somewhere, somebody out in cyber world. And she writes, uh, she's written me before, don't know where she is. She says, only once before. Um, I got a lot of Christian books in my prayer room and I came home to discover that my husband had put them all in a trash bag and thrown them away. Years and years of books he just simply threw out. 
I have mixed emotions. I am angry and I'm sad. I had handwritten notes, personalized prayers for each of our children in some of those books, and they are gone. He claims to be a Christian, but his life does not look like it in any way. He says he believes in God. He does not go to church. He does not pray. He does not read his Bible, and he never worships. He is a miserable person and hard to get along with. He listens to horrible music, watches TV all day, thinks nothing is inappropriate, uses foul language. He lies to me. I cannot trust him. He is perpetually negative, complaining, and unhappy. He is oversensitive and gets offended about everything I say. He is cold-hearted, thinks he's invincible. He always says bad things about other people. He speaks the worst constantly. And for years, I have been praying and fasting for the Lord to break through in his life, and I see nothing. I am extremely frustrated. I need the help of God so desperately. Our home is not a peaceful place, and I don't know what to do. Please pray that God would move powerfully and do whatever it takes to get through to him. I got that yesterday. Why? I I think probably because there's a lot of women who know that guy. (laughs) Sadly, there's a lot of women who can identify a lot of people who understand what it's like to have a difficult spouse. So what does is, what is a pastor write back to this dear woman who's crying out for prayer? I, I want to share it with you. I said, I understand why you would be upset. He threw out that which had no value to him but what you treasured. And this is understandably painful, and I would be angry too. Your prayers, written on paper, may be gone, but they went up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling incense. God has heard your prayers, all of them. They may no longer be present on paper, but they are forever present in his mind because he forgets nothing. So don't grow weary in doing good to your husband, even though you are weary right now. Do not give up loving and praying for him, even he who is persecuting you. Remember that when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Spirit of God rests upon you. May the Spirit of God supply you with supernatural endurance to fight in prayer for the soul of your husband, because if you stop, who will? Your husband is blinded by the God of this world and spiritually dead. He needs a transformation of heart. He needs constant Christ-like example before him, like you, to know that God is really worth living for. I know you're ready to give up, but look to Jesus who endured the cross for the sake of us who at the time were his enemies. Jesus died for wicked husbands and wives who were his enemies. He died for us, so I hope for your sake you have godly women around you who can labor with you in prayer until Christ is formed in your husband. We will pray for you and the transformation of your husband. We're going to do that. So the scribes and the Pharisees were looking to get out, looking for ways out. Jesus looked to God for the strength to endure and do what he was called to do. The only way we will get through our marriages is if we're filled with the Spirit of Christ. That, that poor dear woman, she's spent. She's got no more in her. 
You, some of you in your marriages, you feel the exact same way. I'm done. I am done with him or her. And I would plead with you for the sake of Christ. Don't look to yourself. You must look to the Spirit of Christ to fill you. And you be Christ in difficult situations. We're all in difficult situations. Because that's what God does in a broken world. He supplies his people with his spirit to live in a broken world in such a way that the world cannot comprehend. And so they say to you, how, do, how are you still alive? And you should say, because of God, because of my Lord Jesus. It's the only reason I'm alive. It's the only reason my marriage still stands. It's the only reason I'm still here is because the spirit of God. Without him, we can do nothing except destroy things. Without him, we can do nothing. So what is the call? The call is to be filled with Jesus. The call is surrender your life, your heart, your desires, your emotions, your situation, your job. Surrender it to Jesus and ask him for the wisdom to help you walk through. And he says, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. So I'm going to invite you to pray. And I... I want you to pray for this dear lady. I want you to pray for broken marriages because I don't know of any other place where Satan is at, at, at the most energetic attack is at home. He, if he destroys marriages, he can destroy everything. So would you pray? If you're married, pray for your spouse. If you're not married and you want to be, pray for a future spouse. If you're single and you know God's called you to singleness, then thank him for sparing you. And give him, pray for the strength to endure your particular challenges. And let's just go to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we hear your words. Your standards are so high, none of us can live up to them. We cannot attain to the holiness of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, you call us to be faithful, you call us to be holy. Without your spirit, we will do nothing except hurt people and cause grief. And so, Lord, I ask, would you, would you pour out your spirit on the marriages represented in this room? Pour out your spirit on those who are struggling and are, are fed up and frustrated and at the end of the rope. Give them energy. Give them strength. God, give us a love of that vision of marriage that you hold, which is to faithfully endure through all of the seasons of life. It's not to be free, completely free from struggle. It's nowhere promised in scripture. But you promise to walk with us through every dark valley. Let us as a people know your presence, Lord Jesus. God, convict hard-hearted husbands who think only of themselves and the same for hard-hearted wives. God, give us patience for one another. Lord, I pray for endurance for those who are called to be single or are currently single and are yearning for a marriage relationship. Answer their prayers, but let the foundation be right. God, let us have a good and right view of marriage and singleness Jesus, you were single. You completely understand what it's like to walk through this world without a wife. 
And Father, also I pray, would you safeguard marriages for the sake of godly offspring? For the sake of our children, let us husbands and wives love each other the way Christ loved the church. And God, I pray you would prevent the enemy from destroying families. Do not let Satan get a foothold in relationships and tear apart husbands and wives. May we have the spiritual energy required to to be as close together as flesh and bone. And Lord, I, I thank you for the good and godly examples of marriage that we do have among us. May we gain wisdom from those who are older than us and have gone before us. Let the the wisdom of older married couples, let us as a church, find a way to make sure that that's transferred to younger married couples and anyone willing to listen to wisdom. And so, Lord, there's a a lot here. Uh, We pray for this dear lady who is somewhere in the world sending an email requesting prayer. Would you hear her prayer and send relief? Would you transform the heart of her husband and cause him to love the wife of his youth? And Father, I ask, would you restore marriages in this room that are broken by adultery and sexual sin? Would you, Lord Jesus, make a new thing? Create a new relationship even now as we speak? With you, this, with ourselves, this is impossible, but with you, all things are possible. God, let wives who have had husbands who have offended them forgive. Let husbands who have had wives who have offended them forgive. Let forgiveness be the foundation. Let husbands and wives who have been damaged by sexual infidelity and sexual sin. God, let the newness of your power create a new relationship. You're the God of creation. You can do all things. And I pray, let the sins of the past be washed away. Let forgiveness be granted. Let healing be given. And let your goodness be very present among us. And Lord Jesus, we can do none of this without you. We desperately need you to fill us with your spirit. And so I pray, would you do that? Even as we sing. Amen. Amen.